All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary. I'm Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, the entire chapter. And as always, let's just begin by setting this chapter in context so we remember where we're at in Paul's flow of thought. We are in a big section that's dealing with order and propriety in the large group worship gatherings for the church there in Corinth. And chapters 12 through 14, as part of that, are wrestling with one specific topic. It's one large discussion of what is usually called spiritual gifts. But it's not as if Paul is just giving like some random teaching on spiritual gifts just because he thought, oh, this is something important that you guys need to know about. The spiritual gifts were issues of how the gifts ought to be used in their gatherings, and they were causing some tension in the church at Corinth, so much so that when the Corinthians sent Paul a letter asking him some questions, this was one of the questions that they asked him. They had some question about the spiritual gifts, and so chapters 12 through 14 is addressing that question. And what it seems like was going on in the church was there were divisions, once again, this time about the gifts. And maybe at the heart of a lot of the other divisions was this issue of divisions over the gifts. Because what it appears is it looks like some people were uh, claiming greater spiritual status, being given greater spiritual status because of their spiritual gift. Their gifts had to do with knowledge and wisdom and speaking, and so their gifts were more prominent. And of particular importance to the Corinthians was the gift of speaking in tongues, and that gift was viewed as especially spiritual. And then they're misusing that gift in the church gatherings to boot. And so all of this is creating some real factions and divisions in the church. And in vintage Paul fashion, he's slowly working up to his specific advice. That's typically how he's been doing it in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so chapter 14 will be a specific advice on speaking in tongues and the large group gathering, but he's he's giving some general principles as he works up to that. So chapter 12, Paul points out how it takes many different parts to make up one human body, and all the parts are necessary and important to the the proper functioning of the body. And he says the same is true in the body of Christ, that a diversity of gifts is actually a God-designed necessity. And for the body of Christ to work properly, there needs to be some unity within that diversity. And so he made that point in chapter 12. Well, now here in chapter 13, what we're going to look at in this recording, we really get to the heart of Paul's prescription for the Corinthians' misuse of the gifts. This chapter, chapter 13, is like the meat in the middle of a sandwich. You have chapter 12, which is about the spiritual gifts in general and how there is diversity and unity within all that in the body of Christ. Chapter 14 is about prophecy and speaking in tongues and the gifts in particular. And here in the middle of those two chapters about spiritual gifts, you get chapter 13, which is the meat in the middle of the sandwich. It is the more excellent way that Paul said he wants to show them at the end of chapter 12. The thing uh, that is superior to the spiritual gifts and makes the proper use of the spiritual gifts possible, and that is the way of love. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is the well-known and famous love chapter in the New Testament. And Paul's already mentioned in chapter 8 how knowledge... Here, knowledge, gifts, supernatural knowledge and prophecy and all this stuff, how knowledge 
puffs up and makes arrogant. But love, in contrast, builds up. It builds up the body of Christ and builds up other people. Well, now Paul's ready to develop that theme completely and fully. And so that's what we get here in chapter 13. And as we begin this chapter, keep in mind that it was gifts like prophecy and speaking in tongues and things like that, which were causing divisions and the problems uh, with the spiritual gifts in Corinth. And so Paul begins chapter 13 by talking about speaking, specifically speaking with tongues. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 13, If I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. The last gift mentioned at the end of chapter 12 is speaking in tongues. And as we noted, chapter 14 is going to give specific advice and instructions regarding speaking in tongues. But here, here's the key. The key is love. Paul says if, if you've got that gift, if you're able to speak in tongues, that by itself does not make you like extra spiritual, super spiritual. What's the mark of that? Well, the mark of spirituality is Christ-like love. In fact, Paul says here in verse 1, if, if I could speak all kinds of human languages, the, the tongues of mankind, right? If I could speak all kinds of human languages. Not only that, if I even knew the language that the angels use, if I could speak that language too, no matter how many languages I knew, no matter if it was a heavenly language I knew, it wouldn't matter if I did not have love. If I don't have love, then when I talk, I'm just making noise. In fact, Paul will say, when he gives us specific instructions in chapter 14, that if you have something to say in the church gathering in an unknown language, speaking in tongues, right, in a foreign unknown language, if, if you have something to say in that language, but there's no one to translate it, then Paul tells them, just keep silent because it's not going to benefit anybody. Why speak if no one understands? If you do that, it's just noise. I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And it's not just with tongues. It's also with prophecy and the other knowledge and faith gifts too. So he says in verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, like prophecy was speaking a specific message to the church. And Paul's actually going to prioritize that in chapter 14. Paul says here, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and knowledge, like if I have this gift of special revealed knowledge from God about important things to the church and the church body, if I have that gift, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, perhaps hinting at the saying of Jesus about faith to move this mountain, right? If I have all these gifts, but I do not have love, I am nothing. He goes on in verse 3 and says, If I give away all my possessions to charity, and if I surrender my body so that I may glory, uh, but I don't have love, it does me no good. Now, just a couple details there on verse 3. He says, if I give away all my possessions and if I surrender my body, and this edition of the New American Standard says, so that I may glory. Other versions talk about being burned. Like, is it glorying, which means boasting, or is it getting burned? And the reason for the difference is because the manuscript evidence is split. So either Paul says, if I sacrifice myself so fully, even to the point of being burned to death, but I don't have love, it does me no good. 
Or, Paul says, if I sacrifice myself so fully that I could boast about it, but I don't have love, it does me no good. And the manuscript evidence is split on which of those is what Paul originally wrote. And the reason for that is because it's only like two letters different in Greek. And both phrases could work. And both phrases make Paul's point. And so it's just not clear. And this is one of those places where even the manuscript evidence doesn't lean heavily in one direction or the other. So it's not totally clear exactly what Paul says. Either you're giving away to charity so that you could, and you've done it so completely that it's like, yeah, you legitimately have a legitimate boast in that. Or you've, you've surrendered yourself so fully that, man, you, you, it's, it's like being burned to death. Either way, it makes Paul's point. Then Paul says, if I do that, but I do not have love, it does me no good. Can you actually give away all your possessions without love? And the answer is yes. Yes, you can. You can, you can give for self-serving reasons. You can give to try to look good. You could give to try to get people to, to come your way or like you or, right, you could give for self-seeking reasons. And Paul says, if, if you give generously, but you do so not from a heart of love, not from a motivation from love, but for self-serving, self-seeking reasons, it does you no good. And the particular word that's used for love here in chapter 13, and it shows up multiple times in these first few verses, is the Greek word agape. It is a distinctly Christ-like kind of love. In fact, the word agape was not used broadly and widely in the uh, Greek-speaking world or in Greek literature prior to the time period of the New Testament. And the New Testament authors then could infuse it with Christ-like, Christ-shaped kind of love. The kind of love that lays down your life for somebody else and goes to the cross for somebody else. Christ-like kind of love. It's a self-giving commitment to the good of another person, regardless of what I get out of it for myself. That is agape. And so Paul says, if I have all these gifts and I do all this great service, but I don't have Christ-like kind of love, it's nothing. It doesn't do any good. That the mark of spiritual maturity is love, Christ-like kind of love. So Paul's going to go on now and describe how this kind of love acts. He says in verse 4, Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act disgracefully. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not keep an account of wrongs suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. This is how agape love, Christ-like kind of love, acts. It's patient, which means it takes a lot to make you angry and lose your temper. That's what the word patient means. Macrothumia, big anger, but it means not that you have big anger, that it takes a lot to make you angry. Patient, it's kind. And this word kind means seeking the good of another person, what's best for them, what's most helpful to them. That's what the, this particular word that's translated kind means. It's not jealous, uh, being jealous of what people have, the attention they get, their life and who they are, thinking it's not fair that they have all that or they're like that and look at my life, right? Love is not jealous 
Uh, love does not brag. It doesn't boast and brag. It's not arrogant, right? In chapter 8, we mentioned already, Paul says that knowledge makes arrogant. It puffs up, but love builds up. Well, love is not arrogant. So maybe you say you don't brag, but you can still be pretty arrogant, conceited, and puffed up, right? Love's not like that. Love doesn't act disgracefully. And that particular word translated disgracefully here is only used here and in 736 in the New Testament, although the adjective related to this word is used in chapter 12, verse 23. And the idea of the word is to act in bad taste, to act in an unseemly manner, to be crude and rude. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't seek its own, its own things, its own way, its own benefit, right? Love doesn't serve itself. Love is not provoked. It's not, uh, love is not the kind of thing that you would say, man, that person's just an angry person, right? Uh, that, you got to walk on eggshells because you never know what might tick them off. Love's not like that. It's not easily provoked. So when love takes possession of a person's heart and soul, um, then they're not easily angered and provoked. Love doesn't keep an account of a wrong suffered. In other words, it doesn't keep a, a file of all the things that someone has done wrong against you. Love doesn't hold grudges. It uh, doesn't remember everything wrong they've done. Um, in fact, we know from other places in the New Testament that love's the opposite of that. It, it, it forgives. It grants grace, right? That's love. And so that's what love is like. And this is really the, the true mark of spirituality and, and the spiritual person. He goes on in verse 7 and says, Love uh, keeps every confidence, it believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, I'm reading out of the latest edition of the New American Standard, and that opening phrase is a bit odd. It keeps every confidence. That's just kind of an odd translation. The uh, ESV says uh, it bears all things. The NIV says it always protects so obviously there's some variety here, and this particular translation in the New American Standard is uh, the most unique and a little bit odd. But the reason for that is because this particular Greek word a lot of the times means something like cover up or keep silent about with the idea of keeping confidential. So that's what this version of the New American Standard is trying to get at. But this word also is used to mean put up with or to bear or endure. In fact, Paul used it that way in chapter 9, verse 12, when he says he bears all things for the sake of the gospel. And that really seems to be the idea here. So I actually think previous editions of the New American Standard were more correct than this latest edition. I don't think it should be, it keeps every confidence. I think it should be something like it puts up with all things or it bears all things. And that's the idea. Uh, not only that, it says it believes all things. We must not misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying love is naive and undiscerning, as if love will just believe anything and everything. That's not his point. What he's saying by this phrase, really, along with the next two, is that love keeps on believing. It never stops having faith. It has a deep and abiding trust in and loyalty to God and even confidence that God's going to work out his purposes through his people. Love never stops believing. That's the idea. And it will never give up hope. Uh, hope in the New Testament is not a wish. Gee, I sure hope that. Um, no, hope in the New Testament is 
hope in God's promises and what he said he will do for us. And so it's more of a confident expectation that God will do what he said he will do. And love has that kind of confidence in God and that expectation for what God says he's going to do. And it never gives up on that. And then it keeps on enduring. Uh, it doesn't just toss in the towel and quit, right? It, it, it perseveres and hangs in there. It keeps on enduring. And then Paul culminates this beautiful description of love at the beginning of verse 8 by simply saying, love never fails. And again, we have to make sure we hear Paul carefully. He's not saying love never makes a mistake or love never messes up. The word translated fails is literally falls. And when you read that phrase in the beginning of verse 8, in context of the following lines, you can see clearly what Paul means by this. He means that love doesn't cease. Love doesn't come to an end. It always remains and always continues. It doesn't fall out of style. Unlike the, the, the revelatory gifts, prophecy and speaking in tongues that the Corinthians are so excited about boasting over and creating divisions over, love doesn't come to an end. Those gifts, those gifts do. But not love. It never goes out of style. Love is never done away with. Love never ceases. That's the idea of this phrase. Love never fails. It never falls. But those other gifts, prophecy and tongues and things like that, those gifts that they're so proud of, what about them? Love goes on and on and on, but those gifts do not. So look what he says in the rest of verse 8. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. And that word translated done away with is literally abolished or rendered inoperative. It will come to an end. If there are tongues, they will cease. That is the gift of speaking in languages you haven't learned. Guess what? That's going to cease. It's going to stop. If there is knowledge, we're talking about supernatural reveal knowledge, the spiritual gift kind of knowledge. If there's that, it will be done away with. Same word uh, from the first uh, one about prophecy, right? Abolished, rendered inoperative. And so these gifts are temporary and they're designed to be that. Not only that, uh, they're not just temporary, they're partial. Look at verse nine. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. And so not only are such things temporary, but they're also partial. That is, they're incomplete. Think like piecemeal. There's a prophecy for Corinth over here, and there's one for Ephesus over there, and, and there's one for Thessalonica up there, right? They're piecemeal and partial. Some special revealed knowledge for this congregation, a different bit of special revealed knowledge for this congregation. And so as good and important as these gifts might be, they are temporary and incomplete. And partial things are meant to give way to complete things. And Paul actually gives then a, a couple of statements or a statement and an illustration that make this point, that partial things are meant to give way to complete things. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. So prophecy and tongues and supernaturally revealed knowledge, those gifts are partial and incomplete. And partial things are meant to give way to complete things. And that's the idea of this statement here in verse 10. In context, the word perfect means complete. It's the word that can be translated perfect, but it also is translated mature. It's also translated complete. And here, since it stands in contrast to partial, then the proper translation really is complete or even completion. When completion comes, 
partial is done away with. That's just the way it works. Notice uh, the partial will be done away with, and that's that same word that was used up above for being rendered inoperative, right? Abolished. And there's been a number of views as to what verse 10 here is getting at. What's this perfect thing um, that, that the partial gives way to? Now, so some have said it's the second coming of Jesus. And perhaps, but then we would need to be more precise than that because in Greek, this word is neuter. So it can't be a he, him, a person. It has to be an it. Uh, so some have said, well, it's heaven. It's the new earth. Possibly, right? Um, some have even said, well, since we're talking about revelatory gifts, tongues, prophecy, supernatural revealed knowledge that are partial. It's now talking about completed revelation, when revelation is completed. And some have suggested that. And, and they've pulled not only the comparison with revelatory gifts, but the fact that it seems like faith, hope, and love remain when the partial is done away with. Well, that would seem to suggest perhaps before heaven. But the more I've read this and the more I've meditated on this and the more I've read it in the Greek and just listened to the flow, I wonder if we should not try to find a specific thing for which it refers to. In other words, there's not a specific referent for the perfect thing, the complete thing. I wonder if we should just read it more as a general maxim, right? A, a general statement of truth. Paul's just said that these gifts are partial that they're eventually going to come to an end. And he's done that in contrast to love that's going to continue and remain. Love's never going to fail. And he's going to emphasize that at the very end of this whole section when he says that faith, hope, and love remain. And so love's never going to come to an end. It's never going to fall. These things are partial and they are going to come to an end. And this this sentence here, or this part of the sentence in verse 10, is really his rationale for that fact, his rationale that love is going to remain and these gifts are not. Notice that the sentence, as it begins in verse 9, begins with the word for. It's explaining. It's giving the rationale. And so it seems like what Paul's actually doing is just stating a general observable truth that applies to lots of situations in life, including this one about these partial gifts. And that general truth is that partial things give way to complete things. Maybe if pressed, Paul would have had something specific in mind. But since he doesn't specify it here, I think it might be best for us just to accept and respect that and just say, this is just a general truth. For example, um, earlier on in my online ministry, I wrote a little 10-page document about how to read the Bible well and gave some tips for how to do that. But then a couple years later, I carved out more time and I actually paid some money to a professional self-publishing group to create a more complete book on that topic, a 35-page free ebook. It's actually available at listenerscommentary.com. You can go sign up for it right now, right? And it's much more complete and much more thoroughgoing than that little 10-page document that I did uh, earlier on. Well, guess what happened? When I completed that 35-page book, the little 10-page document was pulled from my website because the partial gave way to the more complete book version of the thing, right? It's just the way it works in life. Or think about a, a little kid. He or she learns her ABCs and she's got flashcards form right, A, B, C, right? Uh, with capital and lowercase and she learns her, she's got flashcards for ABCs. But when she learns how to read words, 
guess what happens? The flashcards go away. You don't need them anymore. The partial gives way to the complete. And so the point of the statement then here in verse 10 is to give the reason for why prophecy in tongues will cease. They're partial and incomplete, and that's just the way it works in life. Partial things give way to incomplete things, but not love. Love will stick around because it's God's love, and since it's God's love, it's perfect, and it's complete, and so it's never going to be replaced, and it's never going to go out of style. In fact, the illustration of a child and her ABCs is sort of actually where Paul goes next in verse 11. So he's given a general statement in verse 10. Now he illustrates it in verse 11, and he says this, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man... I did away with childish things. I got rid of those things. And so this is a follow-up to the general truth. It's an illustration of how incomplete things, immature things, the, the same word in Greek could be translated complete or mature. So this illustration actually works very well in the language uh, that Paul is using. It's just an illustration of how incomplete or immature things give way to mature, complete things. And so... That's the way life works. And so he says in verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part that I will know fully just as I have been fully known. And it's actually this verse that has led some to think he's talking about heaven, right? The, the idea of seeing someone face to face. But just pause for a second, read the verse closely, and I, I think you'll see it doesn't make full sense to say it's heaven. Usually, those who say it's heaven take the phrase face-to-face -face as seeing Jesus face-to-face. -face. But, but Paul's talking about a mirror. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face-to-face. -face. So he's talking about a mirror, and whose face do you see in a mirror? Your own. Your own face. And mirrors in their day were somewhat special, like they weren't everywhere. In our day and age, mirrors are everywhere. You walk into any bathroom, there's a mirror, and you see your face, and it's crystal clear, right? Mirrors in their day were made of polished brass or polished bronze. In fact, Corinth was actually well known for the mirrors they made. Uh, Corinthian bronze had been a product historically that Corinth was known for. And while polished metal is pretty good, it's still a dim reflection of yourself. It's not nearly as clear as our mirrors or we have our cameras and we take selfies and we see ourselves clearly all the time. In their day and age, it was rare to ever get an image of yourself. And when you did, it was a dim reflection in a pond or a dim reflection in a polished brass mirror. And so what Paul is talking about is not seeing Jesus face to face when he says then face to face. He's talking about seeing yourself with crystal clarity. And notice that verse 12 is logically connected to verse 11. It starts with four again. He's explaining. And so this is an explanation of the illustration about becoming a full-grown person and no longer a child. When you put away childish things and when you grow up, you'll see yourself more clearly and more accurately. That's what Paul is saying here. So those gifts to, in the situation in Corinth that he's addressing, those spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, and all those things, O Corinthians, that you're so proud of and that you're creating divisions over, they're partial. And right now, that's what you got. They're partial and you're using them in an incomplete, immature sort of way. But when you grow up, you'll actually have a more complete, full knowledge. Um, and... Even that more complete full knowledge here in verse 12 seems to be a more complete full knowledge of ourselves. I will know myself just as I have been fully known. That is, God's 
Full knowledge of us is the basis and pattern of a more complete and full knowledge of ourselves. A number of writers over history have noted this. For example, Augustine, in his confessions, written in the form of a prayer, says, Lord, let me know myself and let me know you. These two go together, right? The more we know God, the more we know ourselves. John Calvin actually pointed out the same sort of thing, um, that uh, our wisdom, he says, it consists of really two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves, and that these two are deeply connected with each other, Calvin said. He said, it's evident that a man never attains to a true knowledge until they have previously com- contemplated the face of God. And then after, after studying God, And looking at themselves, they'll actually understand who they really are. That fits very clearly with what Paul is talking about here. The more we understand God and who he is and his love, then the more accurately we'll see ourselves. And so in verses 8 through 11, Paul is giving a demotion to prophecy and tongues and gifts of knowledge because the Corinthians have an overinflated view of them. He wants them to see those gifts as partial and incomplete and temporary, like the ABCs. But what really matters? Like, what really is the hallmark of a mature spiritual person? Well, the hallmark of that, as Paul's already said, is love. And that's the kind of stuff that really matters and really lasts. And so look how he ends this section in verse 13. He says, But now faith, hope, and love remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So in contrast to these gifts that the Corinthians have an overinflated view of, here's what really matters. And even out of these three, there's a priority. The greatest of these is love itself. So these three are more important and more lasting than those partial revelatory gifts. And notice the the combination, faith, hope, and love. These three are grouped together oftentimes in Paul's writings, uh, different orders, but they're often grouped together in Paul's writings. And in later church teaching, they became known as the three theological virtues. They, They are like the three pillars of our spiritual formation and our spiritual growth. And in contrast to these partial gifts that will be done away with and cease, these three, notice, remain. Now, the fact that they remain in contrast to those three going away, that, that might suggest that it, it would happen before the coming of Jesus, right? And the new earth and all of that. Since Paul says right now we walk by faith, like 2 Corinthians 5, right? Right now we walk by faith, but when, when Jesus returns, we'll, it'll be by sight, 2 Corinthians 5. Or regarding hope, Romans chapter 8, 24 and 5, where Paul says uh, hope that is seen is not hope at all, Right? Um, who hopes for what they already have. And so if faith and hope and love are all remaining in contrast to these spiritual gifts, that seems to suggest um, that that happens before hope has been realized and faith becomes sight, which seems to suggest before the coming of Jesus. But be that as it may, I I think that might be what he's getting at. It's just not 100% clear. Here's the main thing of chapter 13. The main point, of course, isn't for us to argue about 
when these partial gifts are going to come to an end. The main point is to recognize that love is greater than these spiritual gifts, that love is the proper context for where these spiritual gifts need to happen and how they need to operate, that love is the true mark of a person who is spiritual and mature. And so pursue love, aim for love, no matter how incredible your spiritual experiences may have been, Paul has said, if you don't have love, it's nothing. So pursue Christ-like, self-giving love. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of all sorts of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by clicking the link down below or swinging over to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, and that'll take you to a page where you can set up a one-time or a monthly recurring gift. Just put in the amount you want to give, click the little checkbox that says Make This Monthly, and that will set you all up for supporting this ministry. All donations are received in partnership with World Family Mission, a registered nonprofit. Thanks a ton for your support.